I want to bring an idea out to you that is that that I received as wisdom growing up. And around Christmas, Christmas time is this. By the way, I have this thing on. I don't know. Is it on? Can you guys hear me? I actually have it on. All right. All right. Good. No senior moment. All right. Uh, <clears throat> Christmas. One of the themes of Christmas is about generosity, right? Generosity is a big part of what Christmas is supposed to be about. And <clears throat> I don't know where I picked it up, but I just learned it. And maybe you learned this. It's sort of an axiom about generosity. And it says, in, in different ways that this is, is spoken, is that our generosity is limited by our circumstances. In other words, if you have more than you need, you can be generous. If you don't have much, you can't be generous. And that, that common sense sort of wisdom, uh, most of us have heard it in one form or another. Have you heard something like that before? Have you thought that? Has it entered into your head when you're in the middle of a situation where you go, Gosh, I wonder if I could. I wonder if, if me, my family, whatever, should be generous here. We step back and go, well, let me think about what's in my checking account, or you know, what what resources I have that are kind of liquid, and, and that that are available. And sometimes we look at our lives and we think, man, we're just living so close to the edge all the time. What goes in goes out, boom, before we even have time to think about it. And sometimes uh, what comes in is already gone out before it's come in. And then you start feeling the tension of that. And the whole idea of generosity, which we know is such a life-giving, powerful thing. And I, and I think most of us know, like deep, 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 deep down inside us, that we're really meant to be generous people. Everybody is meant to be generous. And, and of course, at different levels... But we're, we are all made for it. There's such joy in it. There's such power. There's such life in it. And, uh, not only for the person that receives generosity, but the person that, that expresses generosity. It's powerful. It's life-changing. It does things in, your, in you that nothing else can. So I want to take this idea that our generosity is limited by our circumstances. And I want to examine it, uh, not in depth, just real simply. And I think you're going to see pretty quickly that that's not a good rule to follow. But I want you to read a passage with me. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there's paperback Bibles in the chair seat in front of you. And we're going to look at First Kings. It's in the Old Testament. First Kings chapter 17. This is kind of a famous story. It's one of my I, I, you know, if you, if you listen to me over the years, I'll come back to certain stories because I think they're just so uh, powerful and important uh, for us to hear. And there are also stories that have impacted the writers of Scripture in uh, all kinds of ways. And, and they come in, to, these stories get woven into other places in the Bible. So 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. Uh, and if you're looking at one of those paperback Bibles, it's going to be on page 248. I'll start reading right there, verse 1. It's a story about Elijah. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, 
As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kiriath Ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had said. He went to the Kiriath Ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Now, sometime later, which usually means, and in, in it's an idiom, it, it means years, a, a fair amount of time later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. Excuse me, he went to Zarephath. When he came into the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? And as she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. And the, the, the word there for piece of bread was like just a small, like a, like an hors d'oeuvre-sized piece of bread. So he wasn't ask, asking for a loaf. He's just asking for a bite to eat. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. <laughs> this is kind of dire situation, right? She's kind of, this, this lady was... Uh, you know, a bit melancholic at this moment, you can tell. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small cake for me from what you, what you have and bring it to me, and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry, until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse, and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, Why, no, what do you have against me, O man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. And he took, her, took him from her arms, carried him up to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, O oh, Lord my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing her, causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O oh Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you're a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. So 
this story just challenges the whole idea that our circumstances can keep them keep us from being generous. This woman couldn't be in worse circumstances, and it didn't keep her from being generous. Our circumstances, if you if you really want to be honest, they have they really have very little to do with our generosity. Uh, I I came across this week an article in Forbes. Uh, someone referred it. I was reading, and someone referred to it, and. Every year, Forbes does a list of 400 people uh, who are the, 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 the most outstanding philanthropists in our nation. And generally, they're people who are, you know, the billionaire class in our nation. They're the 1% the, the of the 1%. And as the, the writers of these articles, and it was interesting that every year Forbes does this, and each year they kind of refine it because over time, uh, in the beginning, when they did these articles, the, a lot of the billionaires didn't cooperate with them. They didn't want to tell them how much they made, how much they gave. They didn't want to give any information up. But it kind of became a thing. And so in, in 20, uh, this is from 2018, but in 2019, I read that article this morning. The, these billionaires were like giving them tax returns and you know, showing them exactly how much they gave. It was like there was some excitement about this it, because in the last year, a number of the billionaires who, who are on the 2018 list, I, I don't want to imagine what their motivation was, but their giving increased between 2018 and 2019, and, and some of them in, in a fairly significant degree. But in all of them, like the, the, the top 10 people gave, on average, 0.94% of their income, which, you know, when you look at the numbers, the raw numbers, like uh, Jeff Bezos gave $131 million. Yeah, but, you know, if you're worth $130 billion, $131 million, it's not even pocket change. It, it's, it's, so all these billionaires, it's interesting, only two of them even came close to, to giving significantly, which was Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. They both gave billions of dollars away. In fact, a number of them have signed a pledge they call the Giving Pledge, where these guys have said, in our life, before we die or shortly thereafter, we're going to give everything we have away. That's a pretty wild, <laughs> uh, ambitious goal. When, when you're a billionaire. Well, the fact that these people have that much money and they give so little shows you, doesn't it, that your circumstances have nothing to do with how generous you are because they're in the position to be more generous than anybody could imagine. And yet, many of these people are doing very little in the way of being helpfully generous. So, and I think in our own hearts, in our own lives, we can probably look at circumstances in our lives where we weren't generous because of a lack of, of finances. We, were, we, were, we weren't generous because of a lack of generosity in our hearts. And it wouldn't have completely crushed us 
financially to be generous. We just chose not to. Now, I want to look a little closer at this story just for a moment because what happened in this woman's life is there's two things that she learned that were crucial to her becoming a generous person because in, in one sense, you can say this woman put a face on generosity. She became generous in a way that was really risky but life-giving. And God was involved in it, but it wasn't something that she just came to like this. And I, I, sometimes we read these stories and we can't appreciate how challenging or, or what was going on in the story. And so I, I want to take a second and uh, kind of draw some of those things out for you. So what Elijah was doing when he came into town, God had spoken to him and said, hey, I've appointed a widow. I've commanded a widow to provide for you. And so we're not going to talk about the test of faith that Elijah experienced here, but trust me, Elijah's faith was tested as much as this woman's faith was tested. Because going to where he went and then finding a widow in the middle of a famine who's part of a foreign nation that is an enemy of your people is not like, sounds like a great idea, God. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that, you know, she's got a refrigerator stacked with food for me. So he goes to this place, and, and God didn't say, there's a widow named, you know, Marlene, and she's at XXX, you know, number street. God just said, go there. And so this whole thing was like a, a, a wild goose chase in a certain sense. And so he walks into town, and I think he just showed some wisdom as he just saw a woman, and, he, and he's kind of going, I'm just going to, I'm just going to, I know that there's some woman who's going to help me. And so I'm going to show up in town, and I'm just going to ask for a drink of water. And if you haven't noticed this, as you, if you read through the story, this story is just like Jesus and the woman at the well. Just point for point for point for point for point. And it just starts off with Elijah is, is thirsty. Jesus was thirsty. And we're not going to try to follow the parallels, but it's, it's an amazingly uh, identical story with, with just a few little changes in it. So when Elijah came into town and he finally figures out this, who this woman is and she's the one that God commanded to provide for him, he's not just asking her to make him a tortilla, right? He's just not saying, you know, give me a little hors d'oeuvre. What he's saying to her is something that has, you know, real spiritual implications, which is at the heart of this. Because here's the thing about generosity. Generosity flows from experiencing God's generosity. It flows out of experiencing God's generosity. Experiencing it, not just knowing about it, not just hearing of it somewhere else, but I mean experiencing it yourself. But for her to experience God's generosity, something has to happen. And he's inviting her into it. Now, here's the way it works. So, Elijah asked her to become one of God's people when he asked her to make him bread. The way that you showed your worship 
in the ancient world and your allegiance to some god was you would, you would bring offerings of some kind. And you would always bring the first fruits. Whenever you'd have a crop, you would take the first part of the crop and the fruit of the crop and you would take it to your god and you would offer it to them. And, you know, I have friends who live in Hawaii and they say you can go up in Hawaii and find little altars all over the place in the mountains of Hawaii where you will find sometimes a little image of some sort, but there'll be a little altar to the gods, you know, uh, that people believe inhabit the mountains. And you'll find dollar bills there. You'll find food. You'll find all kinds of things, gift cards. I'm serious. You think the God's going to just go down, right, to the, to the local roadhouse grill and use that here, you know. Let's have a party. But that's what people do because they know that God, that whatever God you worship, asks for offerings. Now, making bread for him was because he represented the Lord, the God of Israel. Her nation's God was Baal, the God of fertility, and the God of storms and the rain. So, so Baal was a competitor god to the Lord. And Elijah was, had left his home country to go to Sidon. And Sidon was down by the sea. Okay, so Elijah was over by the Jordan River. He had to travel all the way across Israel down to the Mediterranean to Sidon, which was a port. And Sidon was uh, an area where the Phoenicians had settled and they worship Baal. And Baal was, like I said, the god of fertility. And so the, these, these, these first fruits offerings that people would bring to their god were signs of ownership. Like if you have a, if you have a business and you borrowed money from you know, a bank or some private equity company, every month you pay them something. You, you make income, you pay them. It's a, it's a reflection of ownership, right? You own part of my business or, or you know, however much of your business that, that you've negotiated that they own, uh, like your home. You know, when you borrow money from the bank, the bank has a right to your home. And if you don't pay the loan back, right, the bank takes it back to pay off what you owe, and then they give you the remains if there is any. And so it's this ownership issue. And so this, this exchange of food had all kinds of meaning to it. And the woman understood this. And so God, through Elijah, was saying to the woman, I'm offering you the same deal I offered Abraham. Now, I want to read this passage to you. If, if you have a Bible with you, you could do this. It's, it's really easy to find. It's in Genesis 12. And what God said to Abraham in chapter 12 the Lord said to Abram, starting in verse 1, Leave your country and your people and your father's household and go to a land I'll show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I'll curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So, the Jewish people were very proud of the fact that God chose them and that Abraham 
was their forefather. And they, they lived this story out in the open. And so all the people and all the nations around Israel knew Israel's story. It's just like Christians, if you're following Jesus, you share the gospel as the story that God's drawn you into. God's story is your story. And you tell other people that story. Now, sometimes we don't, but, but we should, because a lot of times people don't understand, why are you following Jesus? And so you tell a story. Well, Abraham's story, this is what salvation is. In the Old Testament, the idea of salvation was what Abraham experienced, that God said, whatever gods your father served, I want to be your God now, and I'm going to bless you. And that word meant, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to make your name great. So Abraham was a nobody. He was a nobody. He didn't have anything at that point. And if he left his father's household, he was cutting himself off from all the resources of his family and his clan, protection, you know, the, the father's, uh, the, the inheritance of the family. He's going it on his own, and God's saying, I'll take care of you. I want you to do that because I want you to depend on me. I want you to, I'm going to be owner of your life, but I'm going to provide for you. In fact, I'm going to provide for you. Whatever you think you give me, I'm going to give you way more than what you give me. And Abraham goes, I got to think about that. Yeah. Right? There wasn't like a a, a long rumination over, does this sound like a good deal? Would you, you know, uh, Sarah, do you think this is a good deal? I don't know. We got to go back and talk to dad. No, no, no. Abraham went for it. It says he, so Abraham left as the Lord had told him. And he went to a place, God didn't even tell him where to go. He just said, go. Just, you're going to wander. You're going to learn what wandering is all about. And so, God was inviting this woman because covenants were made over meals, too. You know, we've talked about this many times, that covenants were made over meals. Well, all she had, Elijah didn't have anything. All she had was bread and oil. Elijah was coming as representing the Lord. Elijah didn't have anything, but he was coming as the face of generosity to her. She wasn't the kind of person that if someone came to the town would look for her and say, hey, let's go hang out with her. When people come to the town, they look for the high and the mighty, right? They look for the people who are uh, resourced. When you, when you don't have any resources, you look for the people with resources to you know, get alongside them, and maybe they'll take care of you. He went, God led him to the person who had the least in town. Now, follow me. Put this down here, get back to my spot. To follow the Lord, she had to renounce her faith in Baal. She had to make a decision. Do I follow the Lord who's making me this good offer, but boy, his prophet doesn't look like it works very well. He's coming here. He, you know, he didn't have anything. He's not, he didn't have a donkey behind him with all kinds of goods on it. He's just kind of walking into town barely alive. So he's not the best example of it. And sometimes we're not the best example of what God's blessings look like. But Elijah's coming in. He knows he's got something. That he has God's promises 
And he has God's word for her, and so he shares it with her. This is a woman in a, in a very desperate situation. Elijah has to believe that God's going to back him up when he says this. Do you understand? And so she has to choose, am I going to bring, if, if God's now my God, am I going to bring my first fruits to him? Well, how, where do you bring it to him? There's no temple there. You bring it to the prophet. And if you notice what Elijah said when he was, when, when this is a time of famine. There was a famine because there's no rain. Baal was the god of rain. God, the Lord, was saying to people, who's really God? Baal or me? Decide. And Elijah announces to the people who were following Baal, because that's what was happening in Israel, Ahab and Jezebel had started promoting Baal worship. And they built the temple. And they put an image of Baal in the middle of it. And they said, we're all going to worship Baal now. He's, he's the God who can you know, make us all rich. And, it is, and whatever God you worship will affect your life. And it, it will, he will either make you a better person or a worse person. Well, Israel was degenerating into injustice and corruption and violence. And it was clear Baal was not an inspiring figure. Right? He didn't bring the best out of people. And so Elijah, we, we read, Elijah announced to everybody, listen, we're going to see who's the real God. Now, a lot of people hear about the challenge on, uh, on the mountain where Elijah and the prophets of Baal have this thing about fire. This is more dramatic than that. Elijah announces to the king, which is announcing to everybody, listen, king, you don't want to follow the Lord because you want to follow Baal. Well, it's not going to rain until I say so. It's not going to rain for years until I say so. Now, don't you think that, 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 that Ahab and Jezebel went right to the temple and prayed to Baal and said, oh, Baal, you know, send some rain. And then day after day goes by, week after week goes by. What God does when we follow someone or something and trust in it more than we trust in him is he just allows the worst things to happen. Not because he enjoys that, but he has to let us get to the point where we're desperate enough to reconsider the choices that we've made. And really, it, this, is, this story is played out over and over and over in the Bible. We're, we're presented with these choices, and we make bad ones consistently. And God's really merciful, but at a certain point, he just goes, I've got to let you hit bottom. In fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to speed you know, your descent to the bottom by doing certain things that just expose how bad your choice is. Because it's the only way to wake a person up. You know, in recovery circles, they say you have to hit bottom to begin to see that your life is out of control. It's become un unmanageable. And so that's what happened to Elijah. I'm sorry, to, to the widow and to all the people. But God's going to this one woman who, you know, why on earth the Lord picked her? But he basically said, do you want to worship Baal? How's that working for you? 
she was desperate and about to end her life, right? I don't think she was going to kill herself. She's going to starve to death. That's what happens when you don't have food. When you're a widow, on the list of people who get help, widows are at the end of it. They are. It's always been that way. Nobody cares about them. Because in, in that world, the head of the household was always a man, and a man provided. She didn't have a man to provide. Apparently, there was no extended family. She's completely on her own. But what did God say? God says, I'm the father to orphans and widows and outsiders and immigrants and prisoners and all the people who don't deserve, right, the kind of attention and care that, that other people generally get. And if they don't have anybody, they have me. So the Lord just withheld this rain to display his power and bring everybody to a point of desperation and to a point of decision. And I want you to notice, when, when he came to her, he said, don't be afraid. He said, when he, when, he, when he asked for the bread, she immediately thought, oh my gosh, if I give this little bit of bread away, I'll have less. And she just told him, We're gonna, we have enough for one meal. But Elijah says, don't be afraid. Now, you got to really be confident in the Lord to talk that way in that kind of a situation, don't you? And then, not only to, to, to say don't be afraid, but to tell her why she doesn't have to be afraid. Because if you, like Abraham, accept the Lord's invitation to be part of his covenant people by faith, he's going to take care of you. And all around you, people are going to run out of their resources. But your meager resources are never going to be exhausted until there's rain, which brings everything back to life, right? That sounds pretty wild. And Elijah, I want you to listen to this. Because I've struggled to say this to you. And as I was reading this, I was thinking, this is so for me. As I, yeah, I was thinking, this is all for you. And as I read it, I realized this is for me. Because what Elijah said to the people, I mean to, to the widow, was bring a piece of bread first to me. Then you can eat. I hear that kind of language on TV all the time. Do you? Yet Elijah said that. And I can show you many other places where that same situation is played out. Paul said it. Peter said it. Jesus said it. What he said was, what you do with your money matters. And God owns everything you have. If you're a follower of Jesus, he owns everything. He deserves to get the first just like your banker does. Because he's been way more generous to you than a banker. He's been way more generous to you than anybody that's ever lent you money for anything that you will ever do. And he says, don't be afraid. Now, here's the thing. If the issue of money and fear are companions in your life, it's likely a sign 
that you trust your money more than you trust God. That there are demonic forces that oppress you. Not, it's just not your own insecurity. When we place too much trust in money and our resources and, or anything but God, there will be spirits of fear that oppress us and keep us in chains. Because this is what the demonic does. It robs us of freedom. The demonic world takes our freedom away. Even the freedom to be at peace. I mean, you could have all that you need, more than all than you need. And you cannot have any peace in the middle of it. And some of you know what I'm talking about. And God's trying to get your attention and, and saying, if you put your trust in the Lord, you will begin to see that fear dissipate. There's lots of people who have experienced that. More people have experienced that than have experienced the trusting God and having fear. Paul said to Timothy, he said, you didn't receive a spirit of slavery leading to fear, but you received the spirit who gives you power, love, and self-discipline, right? The spirit of this world, when we, when we believe in something besides Jesus and we really depend on something besides Jesus, we will receive a spirit as a result of that. Just like when you believe in Jesus, you receive the Holy Spirit. And whatever, whoever or whatever we trust in, we're going to have, uh, there's going to be consequences of that in our lives. And Elijah knew this woman, because she worshipped Baal, because her people worshipped Baal. Now, she may have been the kind of a woman who had one foot in each place. She'd heard about Yahweh. She heard about the God of Israel. And she kind of thought, that he's pretty good. I, I kind of like him. But, you know, everybody in my town and everybody believes in Baal, and I can't kind of go against the grain here. And a lot of times that's what ends up happening to us. We start following Jesus, and we start trusting in Jesus and something else. And Jesus says you can't do that. Jesus says you can't serve him and money. And mammon was a god. In the ancient world, there were temples to mammon. And the word mammon was the word, that, that for that god was the word for currency. And Jesus said, you can't. You will serve one or the other. Because when push comes to shove, you're going to only trust in something. Like, like somebody that was here a couple of weeks ago reminded me uh, when I was talking, oh, it was last week when I was talking about uh, Bob Dylan. And Bob Dylan, you know, when he became a believer, he wrote that famous song, uh, You Gotta Serve Somebody. And it's, it's a really kind of corny song, to be honest with you, but it's, it's full of truth. It's just dripping with truth that you, you will serve somebody. And you will have uh, uh, certain consequences to that. So if you're a fence sitter here today, before I finish this, I want to I ask you to consider something. The Lord is asking you to give him the bread that you depend on. The first fruits bread. And I'm going to explain that in just a minute. He's asking you 
I am speaking for him. And I, I went before the Lord and said, Lord, I don't want to say anything. You'd get in trouble for saying the Lord said something and he didn't say it. I believe this that with all my heart that the Lord is saying this to us and to you. He's asking for the first fruits of your money. He's asking you for it. There's something the Lord is about that's bigger than you know just some little lesson that we're talking about on Sunday morning. And one of the biggest strongholds that is holding back our country and us is the stronghold of money. And it, it's not meant to be a stronghold. It's not meant to be a spiritual stronghold. It's meant to be a blessing and a gift. It's a tool. But if we trust it, it takes over our lives in, in really unfortunate ways. So I just want to ask you, and this is going to take some guts. I want to pray just together. Have you been like this widow or like a person who's been not just a person who, who depends and trusts in money, but you try to trust in Jesus and money or some other thing or some other person? Does this speak to you at all today? Because if it does, I just want to ask you, if you want to, to change, if you want to grow in the area of generosity, you, won't, you, guys, you guys think your lives are blessed. If you got one foot, you're a fence sitter. You don't know what blessing is yet. You really don't. You just don't. This woman didn't, but the Lord had things in store for her. The Lord has things in store for you. And I'm going to show you in a second. Money, and this is all a harder thing to swallow. Money is the door to more, not more money. This woman, because she stepped through this door of trusting God, when her son died, she got a resurrection from the dead which only happened a few times in the Old Testament. She went through the door of trusting God with her money, and it opened the door to more. And, and not always, but many times, money is what keeps us stuck spiritually. Not always, but many times. And if you sit here and you say to me, well, that's not why I'm stuck, you probably are stuck there. If you reflexively dismiss what I'm saying, that's usually a sign right there. That's the point of contention in your life. So if, if you feel like you're stuck in that place, I just want you to stand right now. We're going to pray. We've all been at this place at some point in our life. Right now, at this point in your life, if you're there, just stand up. It's hard. And you can tell if you're there, you're just you're not the generous person that you want to be. If you're not the generous person that you want to be, that's why. It's not because you lack the circumstances, you lack the money. It isn't. It's either fear, unbelief, or disobedience. 
And Jesus wants to be real to us. Now, it may be hard when you're married because one of you wants to follow Jesus and be faithful in ways that your partner doesn't. You just do what you're supposed to do. That's all the Lord wants. So just pray with me. Lord, like this widow, we thank you that you've invited us into your family, and we say yes. And Lord, what little we have, we want to say yes to you right now and, and begin to give that as first fruits every time that we're paid. We want to begin to give some of that to you. Forgive us, Lord, for trusting in something that is completely unreliable, like money or our job or a bank account or anything else but you. Or God forbid, even some God that's a demon. And we thank you that Jesus died on the cross to bear the weight and carry away from us the power of our foolish choices and reconciles to you. And so we come to you now and we say, Lord, just everything we have, we give to you, especially our finances. And here in this season where generosity is in the air, we want to begin to experience your generosity through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Have a seat. Now, I want to... <laughs> I want to explain this to you because this is the, the second thing that's hard to say. So there's a, there's a little concept, uh, a little illustration a guy named uh, Nelson Searcy wrote about a generosity ladder. So if you can imagine right here to one side, we, there's like a ladder. And he uses this ladder to illustrate the whole issue of generosity. And he says at the top of the ladder is blessing. At the bottom of the ladder is curses. And in a sense, you could find this widow at the bottom of the ladder. She's experiencing, because of the God that she worships, everything that God doesn't want us to experience. And Elijah comes along and says, I want to begin, I want to ask you to begin to trust the Lord with your finances, essentially. That's what her money and resources were all one thing at that point. And I want you to give it to the Lord. The first fruits of it. And she took that step and she began to see provision. So you see curses and blessings. In the Old Testament, God said, if you follow me and you're generous and you're obedient to me, your life will begin to experience the good things that I have for anybody that wants to be generous like I am. Because God's generosity is the foundation. Remember what we said? Generosity flows from experiencing God's generosity. So she experienced God's generosity. Now, I want to tell you something. It doesn't say it in the story, but when you begin to experience God's generosity, one of the things that you can begin to do is you can begin to have imagination about the impact you can have. Because I don't think for a while, because as soon as you're going to be tested, those of you that stood up and those of you that didn't stand up but said, I'm standing up in my heart, I just don't, <laughs> I don't have the guts to stand up like those people, but I'm where they are. When that woman went to her two jars 
emptied them out because she only had enough for one meal. Then she took part of that, one-third of it, let's just say, gave it away. The test started. Do you see? Because now there's nothing. Okay, is God going to come through? You will be tested in the area of money if you say, God, I'm going to trust you and not my money. The jar is going to be empty. You're going to wonder where are you going to, how are you going to come through for me? You're going to look at that jar, and then at some point, they're all hungry again. And maybe they, her, she's thinking, ah, you know, we're all hungry, but let's go out and, you know, let's pick some flowers for <laughs> a few days and put off this scary moment when I have to look into the jar again. And there's just enough again for another meal. It doesn't say that all of a sudden, the, you know, the oil was just pouring out of the jar and the flour was overflowing. I think it was just one meal at a time. But wonder when it struck her. And I'm hoping it will strike you. Wonder when she kind of got into that rhythm of, wow, God's really taking care of me. I wonder if I keep going in there and I give some to other people if there'll still be enough for me. She's already learned there's enough for her and her son and Elijah. I think the Lord is asking us to go on an adventure to see if we can become the face of generosity too. Can what I have be enough for me and for Elijah and for one other person, one other family? Is it possible that God is that generous? If you read the story, it's probable that he's that generous. The thing is, do we have the imagination and the willingness to say, Lord, this is your flower. I'm glad you're taking care of me. Now I want to believe that I'm not living in a world of scarcity, but because of you, I live in a world of abundance. You're already showing me there's more than I thought there was in the world. It's not a closed system. It's not a zero-sum gain place. I, I want to say this to you. Every time you get paid, if, if you're not giving anything right now, like to the vineyard, I want to encourage you to step on that first rung of the ladder and begin to give something substantial that you feel every time you get paid. Here, I've never said this before. I feel convinced that the Lord wants us to do this. He, he's inviting you to do it. Now, you've got to wrestle with the Lord. If you don't feel like that, that's cool. That's between you and God. But a lot of you don't give anything here. You come here, but you don't give here. And Elijah lived above that woman in a little kind of a tent lean-to thing. And his, you know, his stairs were outside because that would have been inappropriate for you know, him to be in her house. But there's a picture there of Elijah representing God being the covering of her house. And that's a picture of the church. 
And the church is the only place, I keep saying it, why I want us to pray through this thing when we gather. The church is the only institution in the world that's been giving all authority. All authority, Jesus said. And we are not exercising it. The Lord wants people to see his face is a face of generosity. This woman couldn't see that. She lived next to Israel. She didn't know that God, their God was that generous until Elijah, who didn't have anything but the word of the Lord, came to her and showed her God's generosity with what he had. And then she had something, and she trusted God, and she became the face of generosity. Who knows how much of an impact that had in her community. God is generous. His, he, he is the face of generosity. But the world won't see it unless they see it through us. We've all got to start somewhere. You've got to start by being faithful to give those first fruits to him. Then you go to tithing, and then you go to the point where you begin to give sacrificially. That's a scary thing, to give sacrificially. Some of you know what that's like. You've given sacrificially, where you've given away what you actually need, like that woman did. She, she moved up that ladder. She saw the blessing of God in her life. So, um, where's Shanna? Shanna, would you come up? I wasn't going to make you stand up or do something embarrassing. Just lead worship. The resurrection part is, I, 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 didn't, I, I didn't share this the way I want to. Let me th think how I can say this in two minutes. She experienced the goodness of God through most of this story. Then at a certain point, her son died. And then she had this she wrestled with something inside her. Is it my sin that caused my son to be judged and die? And the answer is, if you know, it's no. Elijah wondered. He was confused. Like, gosh, God, you're here. But what this woman showed us is, and it's what we see in the Lord's Prayer, God is a good, good father. He's generous, but he's also holy. And at a certain point, you know who widows hope in most? I mean, their children. And there's a point where she really trusted God, but secretly inside her, like we all do, there's something that we really love the most. And at a certain point, God, it becomes an issue between us and God, because God's jealous in a holy way for our loyalty, because Whatever we trust in, we will corrupt it and it will corrupt us if it's not God. And so when he demands we worship him, it's because if you worship him, you won't do anything but become a better version of yourself. But if you worship anything else, it corrupts you. And it may be a slow corruption that beginning just seems sweet. It's like people who are just, they just love their kids so much. But at a certain point, their kids get corrupted by that. 
Our jobs get corrupted by people who love their jobs too much. You love your country too much. You can love your country too much. You understand that? Your country isn't God. Your family isn't God. Your church isn't God. Your looks are not God. Only the Lord is God. And I want to invite you. We're going to sing this little song just to close. I want to invite you again. The Lord's here. And he's put a hunger in our hearts for him. And some of you have been experiencing like a restlessness and a dissatisfaction. And you think if I just take a cooler vacation or I just buy something or I just do something for myself, that's what people will usually tell you. When you're restless, they go, you need to do something for yourself. That may be true. I'm not dismissing that out of hand, but most of the time, you have what you're touching in your heart is a hunger for God. A hunger that doing those things for yourself just won't satisfy. And the Spirit stirs us and draws us to Jesus so that that deep thing can be satisfied in a way that just overwhelms us, that just it, it, the love of God is meant to, to be lavished on us and to satisfy us beyond anything. So we're going to sing this little song that we sing that someone in here wrote years ago, Hungry. And most of you know it. It's a real simple song. If you don't know it, just listen to other people sing it. But as we sing it, I just want to invite you, if you've been feeling that restlessness and that hunger, I just want you to make your way up here, up front in this, like this area, and as just a response of faith to say, Lord, I'm hungry for you. Would you come and satisfy me? Would you become, you know, what really satisfies me above everything else? Because if you love God, you're going to love everything else that he's given you, and you're going to enjoy it way better than you do right now. But none of those things will satisfy you. You know, if you're not hungry for him. And so the spirit that lives inside you, he's drawing you into that place. And don't be proud. Don't worry about what people think. I mean, we're here because we're worshiping the living God, and he wants to meet us here. He's living. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so he wants to meet us here today. I just encourage you, as we, as Shanna starts leading us this song, we're just going to close the service right now, and at any time you want to leave, you can 